Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the industry leaders at Do You Convert, where we talk about the current and future state of marketing and online sales for builders and developers across the globe. We're not here to sell you, we're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover or a question you'd like us to answer? We'll do it. Simply send an email to show at doyouconvert.com. We've got a special episode for you this week. Robert Deese, the chief economist of the National Association of Home Builders, is with us today. And whenever you see the term chief economist, just to make everything clear, that means a future seer, <laughs> you know, has a crystal ball with him at all times. You can ask him anything about anything, and he can connect it to how oil is purchased in dollars or the value of gold or, you know, what your neighbor just got as a raise. It, it's all interconnected, right, Robert? Yeah, and and the crystal balls have been cloudier recently, but uh, yeah, <laughs> certainly you have to kind of think short term and long term when you do my job. That's awesome. Uh, we'll dig into a whole bunch of stuff over the course of the show, but I thought it'd be great, including learning more about you and and the NHB and and what your role there is. But just do a quick postmortem from your perspective as we get going on 2022, because the only thing I can really say for certain about 2022 is it was the year where there was no longer necessarily a national housing story, at least in the second half. It suddenly became regional again, which I, yeah. I see as good news, not bad news. But but what's your take? Yeah, I mean, so my job is, is clearly focusing on the national cycle yeah. to, to the extent that there was one. It was the fact that the forecasts were pretty positive at the start of the year. And I think just about everybody got caught by surprise by the degree to which the Federal Reserve moved from a, an unreasonably dovish position saying that issues around inflation were transitory and would kind of solve themselves. And you know we were pointing to the lumber market and other supply chain issues as saying that wasn't the case, to a Federal Reserve that was incredibly hawkish, if, if, if anything, more hawkish than they needed to be because they were trying to regain credibility. So the result in the housing market was the most rapid increase in short-term interest rates, which then translated in mortgage rates jumping from, at the start of the year, 3% up to about 7.1% on the Freddie Mac measure by the time we got to October. As you noted, it had a lot of different regional effects because when interest rates change, and they are the most important variable in determining the volume of existing home sales and new home sales and the the cost of credit to, to builders and remodelers and apartment developers, but the, the markets that were the most sensitive to changes in interest rates were the ones that were affected the most. So that tends to be higher cost, higher density, higher regulated markets. And then markets that experienced the biggest upshift and growth during the post-COVID environment, because we know that yeah. housing demand shifted not just to secondary markets, but outer suburbs and the like. So Boise, Idaho is probably a good example of a market that you saw things slow down really, really quickly. Yeah. Investor demand drying up, first-time buyer demand, uh, demand that had shifted from the Pacific coast due to affordability concerns, and so big pullbacks. So in those markets, bigger effects on sales volume, bigger effects on, on pricing, and of course, cancellation rates that you saw in markets like Denver and Fort Collins and, and those Idaho markets that were 40, 50, 60 percent in some, some months. So big yeah. significant impacts there. And then markets that Buck the curve, right? That 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 held in there. You know, you look at some of the production numbers from markets like Nashville and Charlotte doing pretty well, 
And as I always say, and I think you'll appreciate this, we're, we're kind of two Buckeyes in the sense that uh, yeah. you got a lot of markets, particularly in the mid- Midwest, that show pockets of strength. So markets like Columbus, Indianapolis, I would include Kansas City in that list. Some declines, uh, but not the declines that you see talked about when you're talking about some maybe the mountain states. Uh, yeah. And I think, like you said, a lot of it has to do with not just, it's interesting when I hear people talk, they're either entirely focused on price. Are home prices going to go up or down? Or they're entirely focused on volume, how many transactions are going to happen? And I, I kind of try to remind people, you got to understand that both are really important. It, it's You can't just celebrate that home prices are not going to fall like a rock if that also means that transaction volume is going to go down by 30%. That's not necessarily healthy. But I, I love what you were talking about with markets. And I kind of view like Boise as the Tesla of home builder markets, right? And so if you look at Tesla stock and what that did over the pandemic and now where it is now, it's it's somewhat similar corollary. But I think the Midwest is doing stronger, um, not necessarily because of transaction differences caused during the pandemic, but because overall, those home building companies seem to be more conservative in their price increases as costs elevated. Sometimes to the negative, I would say, Robert, in that there are some builders we work with in those markets who you know, they're, they're hearing stories of this mythical you know, 30% plus margin, like, oh, we never got there. But now they're kind of having a little bit more consistency in sales volume because of that. I agree with that strongly. I just got back from doing a, a forecasting event at uh, one of the, the local associations in St. Louis. It was a good example of a market that didn't see the the, the run-up in pricing that you see in the national numbers, the you know, like the Case-Shiller Index showing 35 to 40%. Prices didn't go up as much there. So the result is they're not going to go down as much. And then the other factor I would say is that housing affordability itself tends to kind of provide some stability, some shock absorbers to to local markets. So it is no sort of accident that uh, Intel, for example, when looking to increase a, you know, kind of a production facility and locate 10,000 workers looks at a market like Columbus, Ohio. And of course, there are other markets, the South in particular, that are driven by just sheer population growth. So when interest rates go up, we know from a policy perspective, and this is going to get a lot of attention in D.C., the buyers who are hurt the most tend to be that prospective first-time buyer that doesn't have the down payment. They're priced out quickly. We estimated there were probably about 18 million households that were priced out of the market between March and October just due to the, the increase in interest rates. So that's the, the the bad news. The good news is that as interest rates normalize, we're not going to get down to 3%, but if they <laughs> normalize, some of that demand is going to come back in. And I think yeah. that's going to shape our outlook for 23 and 24. Yeah, I'm sure you heard a lot of, I, you don't see this quite as much anymore, of people saying, will you stop your complaining? <laughs> like 6% is still a fantastically low rate. And it's really about that rate of change, which was the biggest in history. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the takeoff for the Fed uh, and and just looking at different cycles, even compared to the cycle of the late 70s, the Volcker rate hikes that resulted in 18 percent mortgage interest rates. And that's typically what people (laughs) are referring to when they say, hey, six or seven percent doesn't sound that bad. But even if you look at that late 70s takeoff, the rate of change, the rapid takeoff was the fastest. And it reflects the fact that the Fed just simply got the inflation call wrong. I, I think that was a mixture of bad analysis and frankly, hopeful thinking 
that some of the supply chain issues would just resolve themselves. It was a, a restart effect to the, an economy that had gone cold during COVID. But there are true structural challenges. And this is something that I think the home builders and NAHB have been trying to tell the Fed since 2014. Within our own industry, we have these challenges of the skilled labor shortage, the availability of lots, the, the availability and cost of credit to the two-thirds of the industry that are smaller private builders. And all these create these kind of frictions in the system that can result in big jumps in costs or pricing yeah. in individual markets when you get a demand-side shock. And that's exactly what we got yeah. during COVID. At, let alone zoning and impact fees and all, oh, yeah. all the rest. You know, I have said a lot that if you gave most home builders in the United States the land for free, they still would not be able to build a home that the general consumer is looking for under three three fifty in most of the country. That's exactly right, and it's also an argument why, when even during the the the, the post COVID boom, sort of the, the boom times of late twenty twenty and, and early twenty twenty one, when we saw forecasts of one point three or one point four million single family housing starts nationwide basis. It was impossible. Uh, this was a conversation I was having with my other peers, the other economists in the industry saying, look, to get there, we would need to add a half million construction workers that are simply not there. So there, there are limits to the industry. I think that is sort of the, the economics of pricing. Obviously, there's a lot of business strategy in terms of how you price the homes. But this is going to be a challenge that uh, we're going to face headlines uh, during the 2023 as a whole where prices are, are going to be going down and builders are going to have to explain, look, our, our costs are still higher. Uh, yeah. The cost of land is, is, is scarce. So new home pricing and existing home pricing are going to go through a little bit of a divergence uh, during the second half of this year. We'll definitely talk more about that. There, there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of, I don't want to say amateur economists, but people in the stock market who are playing economists are, are looking at how new home prices and incentives and price reductions are happening and saying, well, if in Austin, a builder is willing to take a 15 to 20% price reduction to sell inventory, that means that's exactly where existing homes are going to go. And I see you shaking your head for those of you not seeing the video. So we're in agreement, but I wonder if you can explain why, and I'll just, my lay person's perspective is because new homes are always a price premium considering an existing home. And so the price buckets that are being affected are different. Like I, I would, again, I would challenge you in most markets that there is a severe lack of homes at 300 or below. Right. And those homes are not going to be negatively impacted in terms of valuation by the fact that a $800,000, you know, new construction home has to go down some. Yeah. And, and the pricing decision is also, of course, informed by the kinds of homes coming to market. So if you get price declines that are concentrated in the resale market in the mid-level, for example, uh, and buyers basically say, look, I, I'm not going to sell my home at that price, then that, that home does not emerge in the market inventory on the resale side. New home pricing tends to be dominated in the, in the medium run by construction costs. And, and as you said, if we look at where the shortage of housing is, and uh, we, we produced some new estimates just a few weeks ago, we think the United States is experiencing a structural deficit of housing of 1.5 million homes. Uh, now, the media gets a lot of attention about a 5 million or 6 yeah. million shortage. We think those are way too high. Ivy Zellman has said there's a, a surplus. I think she's wrong because if we yeah. look at household data, there's still a lot of young I adults. I love it. I love it because I'm, I'm a, Ivy and I are not close by any means, but I have a chance to interact with her fairly regularly. 
Uh, I've known her for a long time and I'm like right in between the two of you. So okay. I'm, I'm watching mom and dad have an argument here, which is <laughs> awesome. Well, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely more conservative than, you know, Freddie Mac has said yeah. 4 million. The realtors have said five to 8 million. And, and the reason for the differences, this kind of gets then into the sort of the econ nerd of sort of how do you, how do you estimate these things? But it's, it's all based on your assumptions. So our assumptions is to look at vacancy rates historically and say, what do, how much housing stock will we need to add overnight as a thought experiment to return yeah. vacancy rates to their long-term norms? Mm. Ivy is looking at declining population growth rates and declining household formation rates, which we agree with her on, that that is going to affect home building in the 2030s. But I think in the short run, yeah. if you look market to market, there is a structural deficit it's going to persist. And then, as you noted earlier, it is most profoundly felt in that entry level sub three, 300,000 range. And in that kind of market, there's going to be a price premium uh, for building where it can be done, right? Where yeah, the, yeah. the small lot, single family attached, entry level home can be built. And if you think about the deltas, where the change is going to come as we see the Federal Reserve ease up and some of these interest rates fall back. It's the, the pricing in is going to come from those older millennials that come into the market. And they're going to be looking for a slightly smaller product than, say, the custom building market. And if you look at the national data on the custom builds, this is building on an owner's lot where the builder is basically operating under a, a construction contract rather than yeah. selling real estate. That market's doing quite well right now. In fact, in the third quarter, it had the highest uh, level of start since the Great Recession. So what we expect to see in a rebound that we ultimately think is going to emerge organically during the second half of this year is that entry level to really respond to slightly lower interest yeah. rate. And I think where I fall in the middle, but probably more in your yeah. direction, because I don't think we're overbuilt, <clears throat> but I just don't know that it's possible for us to bring 1.5 million on in those price buckets we need to. So I'm looking at the like, that is the demand. But the ability to fill that supply is probably somewhere less than 1.5 is, oh, yeah. is kind of what I'm thinking. We, in fact, it, it, so my focus has been since I took over as, as chief economist at NHP, really on the supply side. Uh, and if I look at the limiting factors of the industry as a whole, labor shortage, lot availability, uh, you know, the, all those factors, there's kind of a speed limit of about 1.2 million single family starts. It's very difficult for us to get above that. And we proved that during COVID. You saw what happened to lumber prices going up to $1,500 per yeah, thousand yeah. board feet. Um, it's labor in the long run that really is kind of the limiting factor. And, you know, we could see some changes there, more offsite construction. Yeah. The shares are kind of low right now, only three to 4% of single family buildings offsite. In the late 90s, it was 7 to 8%. So we could see some gains. But unless yeah. we recruit a lot more construction workers, getting up to about 1.1 or a little bit higher million single family starts, kind of where we need to be to reduce that structural housing deficit. Yeah. And I'm very encouraged and hopeful that we'll continue to find better ways to do offsite. But still, the hardest part about offsite is it eventually has to go on site. It's that just transition from the from the perfect factory floor to reality that you know, is always the, the the toughest last mile. I want to start transitioning towards 2023 a little bit by way of talking about right now, I think the latest chart, but you'll know better than me. We have somewhere between eight and nine months of home supply under construction right now. Do you have any uh, secret intel about what percentage of that is actually sold? 
So the, the, the census data allows us to estimate uh, in terms of, of new home sales, the share that is standing inventory uh, that's ready to occupy to be sold. That's only about 10% of inventory right now. And I think it's a kind of an even split on the rest that is being marketed for sale that's not started construction, and then the part that is essentially under construction. What we expect to see, and this is this is true, that you're going to see a rise in the cyclical level of inventory. So the, the amount of standing inventory that's not yet sold is going to rise. That's going to, of course, put downward pressure on single-family permits. And yeah, in terms of the month supply measure, let's, let's transform it to new home sales. Uh, we're looking at about an eight-month supply of uh, inventory right now that's elevated. Anytime we get up above six, six and a half, yeah. we tend to see... Uh, construction volume decrease. And that's what we're seeing right now. The pace of completions uh, right now is faster than single family starts by about 20 to 30,000 homes a month. So that's bringing the, the volume of the construction pipeline down. Uh, it's ultimately gonna result in some job losses in the residential construction employment numbers, but that's mm -hmm. exactly what the, the industry needs to be doing right now, kind of slowing the amount of construction in yep. the pipeline, do the fact that we've had a lot of demand move the sidelines, and then we think begin to pick up by the time we get to the second half of this year. Yeah, ho hopefully there's a healthy rebirth process that that takes place. A lot of times when people are saying that they wish something would be done quickly to just fix all this now, I'm like, uh, there is some of that natural market dynamic that you have to let work so that we can come out the other side stronger. And if you're already estimating 1.5 low, it just means that that demand kind of buildup is going to be like, We'll come back to 2023, but 2025, 26 should be years where again we're gonna we're gonna undersupply to an even greater degree, and that's gonna be good in the longer term. Yeah, and in fact, at at IBS at the the builder show, we're gonna be kind of rolling out not our short term outlook, but our medium term outlook. And it, if you look at 2025 through 2030, we should have a little more normalized economic environment. We went through COVID, we went through supply yeah. chain issues. There's a lot of global issues, but we're expecting the, the waters to be a little bit calmer. And that gives us a good five-year runway where we can get back up to about 1.1 million or a little bit higher in terms of starts. That's enough to reduce that structural housing deficit by 100,000 or so units every single year. And I think that's going to prevail until we get to the 2030s. Now, this, you know, if, if the, uh, the the crystal ball is cloudy, it gets cloudier still when you look out beyond a, a different decade. But there in the 2030s, you pick up some of the Ivy Zoman type thesis of declining household formations. I agree that begins to really have an impact, particularly in the rental market in the 2030s. And then we face some really big, challenging fiscal policy issues in the 2030s when issues like Medicare, Social Security, basically dealing with the retirement of the baby boomers is going to result in either lower government spending, higher taxes, or higher inflation. And all of that would typically yield higher interest rates. So we've got a kind of a five-year good runway for the second half of this mm -hmm. decade, not quite the, the roaring 20s as people were speculating and hoping right. for. But then the 2030s, we've got some significant policy issues that will tend to push down the demand for home building. But you were hinting at kind of um, gray skies ahead, maybe in terms of job losses and some some other mentions. But when we talk to builders right now, there's, I want to say, an irrational exuberance about, you know, 2022 is over. 
We're in the middle of the spring market and January is pretty darn great. And I, I kind of chuckle in comparison to December, it's always great. <laughs> But that's exactly right. That's the important footnote there. And, and I've, I've heard the same thing. I've talked to other folks in the industry. They're all kind of hearing the same thing, which is better than expected for the end of December and going yeah. into January. We're going to see these uptick numbers. And frankly, we saw it in the HMI, which is our, our single family builder sentiment indicator. It declined as a measure of industry confidence every single month of 2022. And then the January reading of 2023, we get the first uptick in a year. What it's signaling to us is not that we're going to return to normal quickly, but rather maybe we're at the end of a particular part of this cycle, which is that, yes, interest rates have come back down from that 7% range. We still think there's a, an, a chance that they could go back up. Keep in mind, the Federal Reserve is still going to raise by an additional 50 to 75 basis points through March. I think that's baked into the cake. That could push short-term rates up, so you can see long-term rates kind of go up a little bit. And then they're going to go down on a sustainable basis. So this is all part of a healing process. We do think this, this downturn is, is short and sharp. Uh, that's different than the Great Recession, which took years uh, to kind of clear our ways through. But back then, we didn't have a lot of inventory. Yeah, that we, we had to deal with things that were... Uh, at the at the consumer level, very different in terms yeah, of short absolutely. sales and bankruptcies and and all of the rest to clear out. In addition to what home builders had to change, and we had an economic crisis, a financial crisis, a, a totally different situation. Uh, here, this is all the Federal Reserve fighting inflation. And the good news here is, if you look at the core PCE measure of inflation, not the CPI, which is 40% housing, and housing inflation can only be solved by building more attainable housing. But if you look at the core PCE or even the PPI, which is the business measure, they're all moving in the right direction. And importantly, they're moving in the right direction faster than the Fed expected. So the argument for the Fed to go dovish, particularly if we start to see the unemployment rate go up, which we will this year, is that there's going to be a growing share of the, the, the voters of the Federal Reserve who are going to want to go to a more dovish position. That's good for mortgage interest rates, but as you indicated, and I think correctly so, it's going to be a slow process. It doesn't mean we snap back to normal right away because those housing affordability conditions remain really challenging. Prices have adjusted, incomes haven't, and we've got some macro headwinds in terms of unemployment ahead of us. Yeah, and the consumer right now seems to really be interested primarily in homes that are available to move into within the next 60 to 90 days. And so that's the other thing that I hear a lot of builders wrestling with. And I don't know if NHB has a, a viewpoint on this or not, but you know, every builder has this opportunity to focus primarily on pre-selling homes and, and getting contracts ahead of time or building inventory. And certainly uh, everyone for the most part swung toward the inventory camp and most of the builders that I speak with, you know, let's say they have I'm use really small numbers because I'm not great with math like you are in, in my head. If you have 10 homes that are inventory and you sell five of them, uh, the vast majority of builders we speak to are not going to replace those five with five new inventory starts. Right. They're saying it's going to be up to my sales team and the market and what I can do with my costs. And if people buy, great, I'll build them, but I'm not going to replace that speculative inventory. And that on the ground intelligence and strategy completely matches in my world then with the aggregate data, which is that we saw an uptick in single family starts in December, but a decline in single family permits. 
In other words, they're building out the sales that they've previously taken with the help of incentives, a variety of different forms of incentives, but the permits are continuing to decline because the overall month supply level on the inventory remains elevated. Until we get back to about a six month supply nationwide, we'll see weakness in permits, which is why we think the first half of this year, more kind of, you know, a little bit of clouds, partly cloudy type environment, better than what we had at the back half of 2022. But we'll begin to see measurable, sustainable improvement in the activity levels by the time we get to the second half of this year, provided the Fed doesn't throw us a curveball and and go completely super hawkish because they're in a, you know, kind well, of that, a game with chicken. Yeah, and that's that's food. where it brings us back to, to rates, which I have a, a question yeah. that a lot of people have asked me about. But the first is that, that rates are an incredibly important part in terms of some stabilization or or at least the, that lack of the increase uh, velocity because the consumer doesn't want to think about eight months into the future, going through the entire construction process, not having no idea where rates will be at that time. And so there seems to be this, everyone's going to shift towards wanting to sell the home in advance. But if the consumer is scared off by a continued cloudy environment with interest rates and radical changes up and down, that could be a, a strong headwind for all of us as we go through the year. And, and then my specific question for you is, Typically, the, the, the distance between the 10-year treasury and where mm-hmm. mortgage rates are is a measurement of risk. And so I, I interact with a lot of folks on the front lines who get very nervous when they hear that the Fed is going to continue raising interest rates, thinking that it will always be a one-to-one correlation of the day that Jerome Powell says, this is what's happening, this is where rates are going to go. Can you just ex- describe a little bit why you think the separation is so great now and what that means that... When you say baked into the cake, I think you're right. Rates may still go back up a little bit, but they're, they, they jumped really fast because of the perceived risk. And that just talk, talk through that a little bit. Yeah. The, the, the biggest challenge for monetary policy is the fact that they really only have direct control over the, the very short term interest rates. So as you, you indicated, just because they pushed the Fed funds rate up doesn't necessarily mean that the two year treasury, which tends to move with the short term overnight rates like the Fed funds rate. Uh, moves one for one, uh, and and then as you move further out uh, on the longer end of the of the yield curve, talking about the ten-year Treasury and then things like the thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage, that disconnect grows. So one of the things we've been watching is measures of risk, and if you look at the ten-year Treasury rate and the typical thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage is measured by Freddie Mac, the spread for that historically has been about one hundred and sixty to one hundred and eighty basis points. 1.6%. Yeah. So, you know, it it should be larger, but the the fact that we have Fannie and Freddie creating a secondary market shrinks that spread, and that's where we need to be. But we saw it in the fall. It was as high as 300 basis points. Yeah. Now, the reason for that growth, and frankly, it was the reason we missed our our interest rate forecast, we were too low looking at our forecast back in February and March, was we assumed that that spread would get to 200 or 220 but it went higher. And the reason it went to 300, concerns about housing market risk in a a weakening uh, economic environment with the Fed's tightening. Uh, It also went up because the Fed is engaged not just in raising interest rates, but reducing their balance sheet. So they've engaged in quantitative tightening, which means net sales or a net reduction they're holding of Fannie and Freddie debt. They hold 2.7 trillion in those bonds, a lot of them they purchased during COVID to keep those long-term rates down. There's no free lunch. 
At some point, they have to dispose of them. So that pushed the spread higher. And then just general macroeconomic uncertainty. So the, the bad news is that spread is elevated. It's the reason we got up to a 7% yeah. rate. A lot of forecasters didn't think we would get that high, including myself, back in IBS last year. But we got to 7.1. The good news is that because that spread's elevated, if we get additional certainty, policy certainty, macroeconomic certainty, that spread can compress. Now, I don't think it's going to go back down to 160. I've seen some of the other industry forecasts that have it going down pretty quickly. But as it shrinks, we should see some additional room for declines in mortgage yeah. rates. So I think all that informs our 2023 and outlook. That's kind of the, the slow decline over the course of the year that right. exactly. most people Just are that. And, 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 you know, look, it, it's not if you look at the not a straight weekly line. data, it's not a straight line. It, there's a lot of noise, in which is why you, at any given week you can be fairly off your forecast. But I think that the, the environment is one in which 2022, the messaging, particularly from my team at NAHB, was kind of trying to illustrate back in the in the spring. We were concerned about a housing downturn. We called an inflection point in the spring and a housing market recession by July. This year, for 2023, it's going to be about informing consumers that the market has turned. We expect to see demand coming back in, particularly with building acceleration in the second half of the year. And now might be a good time to buy if we start to see some price declines, albeit of differing sizes in different uh, places, but some price declines. And this is a good time to start shopping around. And that should then register as improving traffic numbers uh, throughout the year. Yeah. So I love analogies, Robert. So I'm going to try to summarize what you did with an analogy. So first thing, and I I don't try to play uh, a monetary or financing expert at all, but when we'd say risk premium, it's, you know, these people who have money to lend for mortgages are saying, I could go buy that 10-year treasury that's giving X percent. And that's essentially very low risk to no risk. If I'm yep. going to lend money to someone who wants to buy a home, that risk is greater than the U.S. government disappearing. And so the difference between the 10-year and, and the 30-year mortgage is a sen- sense of that risk. Yep. So on the one hand, we're, when, when people like you and I are saying, well, we don't think the existing home prices are going to tank, and we don't think that there's maybe uh, all the bearish signals that, that some might say, some people would point to that and say, well, then why is there such this, this big risk premium there? And here's my analogy, is that the people who could lend money uh, went to an all-you-can-eat buffet served by the Federal Reserve for the last two years, where there is an unlimited uh, guarantee that we will purchase that loan from you and you can make money on it whenever you want to, basically. Just give it to us. And so these people who had money to lend went to an all-you-can-eat buffet, pigged out for two years, and now are, are not necessarily saying that the risk is that great of a terrible crash. You're saying, well, I don't, I, I'm kind of full. I can sit this out for a little bit and see what happens. Is that? <laughs> I think that's, that's reasonable. It, there's a supply and demand component yeah. as well. So yeah, True. risk is part of it. Uh, it. It's just simply the amount of supply of these bonds that's available in the marketplace as well. Yeah. And so when the Federal Reserve is is that <laughs> it's sort of offering that all you can eat buffet, um, it, when they're buying the bonds, it pushes the long-term rates down. They are now on a net basis. Uh, supposedly at about $35 billion a month, pushing an additional supply of bonds in the market. So you not just have the, the bonds coming online from mortgages being issued by uh, you know, buyers and then packaged by Fannie and Freddie, but you have the older bonds coming on the market as well. So more bonds on the market for investors to purchase, 
means that the price of those bonds goes down. And when prices of bonds go down, interest rates go up, the inverse yeah. relationship. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's both both of those stories at play. Um, the, the good news is I think some of the risking is the, the risk off is is occurring that we're getting more certainty in what the cycle is, is going to look like as it yeah. ends. And then the fact that uh, we got the structural housing deficit and frankly, pretty favorable demographics in the short run with the millennials wanting single family homes. That means that the risk then of a big housing price crash, I think is pretty low. We do have in our forecast model about a 10% from peak uh, to bottom price decline on the Case-Shiller index. And some yeah. markets are going to see a lot more than that. Some markets are going to see a and lot where, less. where we're at right now, year over year, is still positive four-ish oh, yeah. something, right? So we still yeah, have ways it, to go. It's, it's slowed down. But if you look at the monthly data, the last two or three months on a month over month rate, they're declining. Uh, but we expect, again, from peak to trout, you know, maybe 10 to 15 percent. There are definitely optimistic forecasts that don't have any yeah. price declines. I think those are sort of just on one side. And that, and and that, that goes back to momentum, because, again, yeah. we home builders have to have velocity or there's really no point in, in terms right. of a community. And, and there's data issues too. things like the Case Shiller Index is a great academic tool. If you're doing forecasting or academic research, you love the Case Shiller Index because it gives us an apples to apples measure. But it's data that's five months old. Uh, yeah. it, it is a three month moving average of data that's published with a two month data lag. So it literally has data points in it that are five months ago. So it's not a great real-time measure. It's it's more of a backward-looking indicator. So, yeah, it, it, I think you know, if you talk to people who are on the ground, you know, selling homes, they know where pricing is going right now. It's it's mm-hmm. softening. The big question is how much. And if you keep in mind that, uh, again, I'll use the Case-Shiller Index, prices went up almost 40% during the COVID yeah. period. Giving back 10 to 15, not the end of the world, yeah. uh, and certainly not 2008. I always say if I, if I gave you $20,000 today, for free, and then ask for fifteen thousand of it back tomorrow. I don't think you can be too mad at me. No, uh, unless you were playing some time <laughs> game and you you, right. <laughs> you bought right. on margin or something yeah. like that. And yeah. so, you know, from a policy perspective, I think the challenge on this particular cycle is not going to be like the foreclosures that we saw last time, but rather we do expect in twenty twenty three negative media headlines and a declining home ownership rate. What can policymakers do to bring those prospective first-time buyers to the market? And that's an area where NAHB and our local and state associations play a role, engaging with uh, you know politicians to talk about, you know, maybe we need to restructure the mortgage interest deduction as a mortgage credit that can really facilitate people to buy that first home, mm-hmm. given the fact that prices are still going to be elevated even as interest rates come down. Yeah, I don't want to get sidetracked too much, but but the salt change definitely. There, there hasn't been a solution to bring back some of that benefit of home ownership that a lot of people are being capped out on at pretty low levels in most of the country. So, so yeah, that's definitely something. So let, let's shift to, to your role in the NHB. Because yeah. again, as my uninformed opinion, I've, I view you as both supreme educator, but also supreme policy advocate. But but kind of describe in your own words, what what is the role of a chief economist at NHB? Yeah, I mean, every chief economist at different organizations plays a slightly different role. Some are more consultants. I think all of us all kind of play the, the data role. My, my role is going out and doing presentations, talking to the media about the state of the home building industry, the state of the housing industry and the economy as a whole. 
But then uh, because I'm based in D.C. and NAHB is an advocacy organization, I also play the role as an, an advocate and help our lobbyists and our regulatory folks uh, do research. So I'm, I'm the primary communicator with the Federal Reserve. Uh, so the role there is both providing data, but also advocating on behalf of the industry. You know, kind of sort of right now it's an argument of look at the data, go slower than what you're, uh, you know, sort of talking about. Uh, but then also engaging the White House and, and, and Capitol Hill. So, you know, get, getting that information in real time to people who are making policy decisions. And most importantly, just making sure that they're thinking about housing. Housing often sort of falls out of other issues like tax policy or, or foreign policy, uh, but it's a really it's really important to the people in their 30s and 40s who are trying to get into home ownership. And I think that's the advocacy agenda that we've got for 2023 is to kind of make sure that they remember, even as as we sort of get clear of the Federal Reserve's role of, of this particular cycle, that we make sure that people can get access to safe, decent, affordable housing. And that's in the rental market and the for sale market. And there's a lot of work to be done there. Yeah. So I imagine the the role is always busy, but the last two and a half, three years, you've been a busy, a busy guy. Yeah, I've I've been the chief economist here for seven years. Uh, I've been at NHB since November 2005, which was the peak of single-family housing right. starting building boom. By the way, yeah. um, and you know, I lead a team of about a dozen economists. But I, yeah, I mean, the the first three years as chief economist, our our forecasts were, were spot on. I mean, within a percent, <laughs> if you look at our IBS numbers, and then COVID hits and it kind of resets everything, and the yeah. error rate goes to about nine to ten percent in some of the years, and. Um, I, I've told people that I feel like I've lost about 15% of my hair. I've definitely <laughs> gone gray. Um, it's it's been a lot of work, but uh, you know I've, I've I've been fighting for this industry since 2005. I really enjoy it. It was what I was I was trained to do, uh, and I love talking to builders and remodelers and apartment developers all over the country. And uh, you know, to those of you who are not engaged uh, at, uh, at the NHB level, uh, go out and reach out to your local association. It's going to be really important to have your voice heard in 2023 and 2024. We've got a presidential election coming up, and we always want to make sure uh, housing's on the agenda. Yeah, and also gives you the opportunity to look at, at Robert and his team's work on a regular basis when, you're, when you have that connection. What do you think, in terms of affordability, is the most likely thing that can be accomplished? There's, I mean, we could we could think of all sorts yeah. of things that could happen, but what do you think is? Let me give you two. <laughs> oh, good, I like that's positive. There's two. Yeah, out so there. I think we're going to continue to make grudging but slow progress on the skilled labor shortage, and, and that's all about recruiting, training, and retaining yeah. workers. So organizations like the the Home Builders Institute, uh, you, you've got you got other organizations that are trying to bring workers in. I think that story is going to come in play because I think the higher education bubble. I have to be careful about what I say here. I'm married to a, a college professor. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think we're going to see people begin to reevaluate the pros and cons of a four-year degree. And so getting people into uh, construction, I think, is a big part of that story. But if we think about sort of the on-the-ground challenge, quite literally on-the-ground challenge, I think it's going to be about density. The markets that have seemed to have done best and responded and both and, and, and encouraged population growth are those that have been able to build on smaller lots. So the, if you look at average lot size differences in the country, they're huge. I mean, the average lot size uh, in 2021 in New England was like 0.9 acres. 
<laughs> so, I mean, just you, you can't build entry-level housing uh, in yeah. that kind of environment. I was just uh, testifying to the Connecticut legislature earlier this week, and that was my big message to them is try to find ways to reduce lot size, encourage townhouse construction for a certain part of the market, and you're beginning to hear communities listen and react. So the idea of buy right, duplex building and townhouse construction, uh, reducing setback requirements, reducing exclusionary zoning, there seems to be a liberal conservative agreement that that's an area where without subsidy, we can increase the output of the housing sector and allow builders to do what they need to do, which is to build housing units. So I think the combination of getting more people into the industry combined with some zoning reforms is the area where we're going to see some 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 growth. The places where we're going to see the headwinds, climate change policies, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's flood, fire risks, things like that. Those are areas where we're going to see a lot of additional uh, proposals that could increase the cost of construction. Got it. Okay, here's my last question for you. And I'll, I hope it's not a too hard uh, right. <laughs> one, but there's a lot of uh, build to rent fever out yeah. in the world. And from one perspective uh, in the home building industry, as long as home builders are building those, uh, hey, that's great. Talk to me about the impact broader from a yeah. macro-ish perspective of the benefit of having someone being a homeowner versus a home renter. This goes back to my original research as a graduate student. I mean, this is literally what got me into housing economics, which is that there are social and individual benefits from homeownership. Uh, you know, whether they're more engaged in their community, they become stakeholders in their neighborhoods. Uh, I, I literally spent two years at Ohio State uh, as a PhD student doing this kind of research. So in the long run, we need to get people into homeownership. The, the wealth differential between homeowners and renters is huge. It's 40 to one. Um, it is the primary source of savings. But right now we're in one of these environments where if you can't afford the down payment and higher interest rates, yeah. but you want a single family home, the rental demand for single family structures has gone up. And there's always been a sizable rental housing stock in the single family sector. In fact, it's about a third of single family homes when you include townhouses in that group that are are rental. What's changed is the institutionalization of that particular space and mostly mom and pop. In fact, it still remains mostly mom and pop. About one out of 14 or one out of 13 are actually institutionally owned, but that is growing. And that's causing a policy debate in D.C. One over, is it good to have people renting homes over the long run? And I would say in certain situations, it is. Uh, Homeownership remains the ideal. But the other issue is who should be owning those homes? And that's going to result in proposals at the state and local level and the federal level about rent control or different forms of taxation, depending on who owns them. Yeah. My argument has been, and this is now NAHB policy as of the, the fall board meeting in Kansas City, anything that we can do to supply additional attainable, affordable stock, whether for sale or for rent, is a good thing. Yeah. We can have a policy debate about acquiring the existing homes. But if you look at single family built for rent, SFBFR, right now it's about 11 or 12 percent of single family starts. Historically, decades past, it's only been about three. So the share has gone up. We think that share is likely to go up a little bit more, then level off and then begin to fall back. And maybe it could settle in right below 10%. So if you've seen Wall Street Journal stories or radio interviews that talk about a 25% share, they're false. That's a kind of a narrow, inaccurate measure. 
But we do have a policy debate over whether rental single family is going to have long-term impacts yeah. on the population. Well, I think what you're saying is we got to solve shelter first. You know, again, living under a bridge or in a cardboard box is not an option. So we have to give people shelter. That's prime number. And whether they're renting or owning, that we need to provide affordable shelter that meets their needs. Overall, long-term, the benefit both the individual and the country as a whole would be to have more homeowners. And I remember um, watching the CEO of Divi Homes give a presentation at a conference I was at. And she basically just said, if you want to find the single characteristic that is a differentiator between the haves and the have-nots in our society, it is do you own a home or not? And that is the kind of the final encouragement for, for the marketers listening especially. This is why your job is so important, is that if you can help a young young family, young individual understand the importance of getting in, in the game, so to speak, in air yes. quotes, early, the benefit to them in the long term is incredible. Absolutely. And, and if you're looking for research or anything like that that really identifies those benefits to use from a marketing perspective, uh, definitely reach out to your local builders association or NHB. But that's a message we're going to have to make this year because we're going to get a lot of media headlines about declining home prices and is it a good investment or buyer regret in the long run, homeownership really is the way that we build a successful middle class and and housing and home building is, is critical to that. Awesome. Robert, thank you so much for your time. Thank always, you, always good to hear you, but especially yeah. on today's show and hopefully get you uh, some exposed to some people who might be focused more on the day to day. But I think anytime you can hear this stuff, it, again, for many of you, we might've said a lot of words and move quickly over topics that you're going to have to go back and Google. That's okay. But it helps you understand the importance of your role and also why, you know, you might think your owner or division president is acting irrationally on a Tuesday afternoon. It's because of some of the things that that Robert's talking about that they're trying to process and and maneuver through. And it, it's always helpful to have a bigger picture. Great. Thank you. It's good to join Absolutely. you. We'll see ya. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Market Proof Marketing. Can't wait for the next one or looking to connect with other new home marketers? Become a member of our private community, DYC All Access, which is 100% free and always will be. Get exclusive content not shared anywhere else access to private events, and the ability to join a marketing impact group with other marketers like you around the country. Visit our link in the show notes or members.doyouconvert.com to join. All opinions expressed by me, Andrew Peek, Jackie Lipinski, and our castmates are solely our own opinions. Now get to work and make sure your company is market-proof.